It wasn't so very long ago that one of our elders, who's presently tending with this little girl, about telling me this story. Who, if you've seen her, you might not think she was real. She looks like a little doll, but she is real, and she's really extraordinarily cute. You people make beautiful babies here. And she was being asked, I think, why is it that you can trust God? Why should we trust God? And she answered in the most descriptive sort of way. She said, well, because he can beat bad guys. Because he has lightning power. And he has sun power. And he has moon power. And how do you argue with that? He can beat bad guys because he has sun power and moon power and lightning power. And if you add this story to it, he's also got wind power and wheel removal power. And it seemed fitting to me that the diminutive and extraordinarily cute daughter of a person who has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and has studied ancient Near Eastern cultures exclusively, not exclusively, extensively, would come up with an answer like that about God, that he has these powers Moon powers, star powers, sun powers. Because you know what? In the ancient Near East, in the Egyptian world, the Egyptians worshipped Ra, the sun god. People were forever personifying these forces of nature and making them gods. And constantly, when God is in the business of forming people, of taking slaves who've never thought of themselves as anything but a slave, who have only thought of Pharaoh as a king, as a god, he says, you're pictures of God, little statues of God, and I'm the true one. And I've got moon power. And I've got sun power. And I've got rain power. You don't trust Baal to make your crops grow. You trust me. Because I made all that stuff. God is always coming up with fighting words against the religions around Him. He doesn't look for some middle way for harmony for all the religions. He says, I'm the true religion. I'm the only God. Those other gods are chumps. And this story shows that it's true. And if you're a kid in here today and you were able to get one of those little pieces of paper, I'd love for you to do something. When you're listening today, if you hear anything I say, you'll of course hear some things I say, but if you understand anything I say, I'd love it if you could try to write down a picture of something that we talk about. I don't know what it would be, but I'm eager to see them, and then we might put them on the bulletin. But we'd love to have you listen to what we're saying and try to write down a picture of this story that we're talking about. And then leave them on the table when you leave today, or let your mom and dad leave it on the table. So here we go. God showing that He alone is God. That He has no rivals, and that He alone is to be trusted, which is how this story ends. But here's how it begins. When Pharaoh let the people go, this is a part that Jennifer didn't, we didn't ask her to read. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that way was shorter. This has already given you some insight into the way this God, the true God, works when he's dealing with his people and he's forming them. He knows them inside and out. And he knows our preference for slavery. And so he says, 
I'm not going to take you the shorter route because if you go there, you're going to meet up with these dudes that later give birth to Goliath. And they're going to be ruthless and they're going to scare you and you're going to run back with your tail between your legs to Egypt. God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. He doesn't want them in Egypt. He's taking them to a new place. He's taking them to a new situation. He's making them a new people. And so he leads them along in a circuitous route in the desert. And one of the remarkable things about his leading is he becomes a kind of divine GPS for his people. They are out in the desert, and during the day, they have a cloud, a pillar of cloud, probably much the same as you when you drive to work in the morning. If this happens to you, I would like you to document it. They were walking in the desert, and they had a big cloud that was leading them to show them where to go. They didn't have to listen to any annoying computer animated, automated voice. Turn to the right, turn to the right. Turn. God led them. And at night, fire. A pillar of fire. All the presence of God leading them. So they could move in the nighttime. They could move in the daytime. They didn't need any of them minor lights on their helmets. And so he's leading them out. And God lets Moses in on a secret. The Israelites don't know this secret. But God has this. And this kind of thing happens in the Bible a lot, and it's worth knowing about. It's part of the wonder of His revelation to us is that God is always up to something. But we're rarely aware of what He's up to. That creates a problem for us. But God says this. Here's what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to put on a muscle shirt. I'm going to do some of this. Boom! Boom! I'm going to show Pharaoh who's boss. I'm going to show him might like he has not seen before. I'm going to tamper with his heart. I'm going to change his mind. I'm going to lead him <clears throat> to the Egyptians, I mean, to the Israelites and gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, a divine warrior. They'll know without any equivocation, I am the Lord and there is no other. And so he says, here's what you're going to do. Lead the Israelites back and let them look confused. Because that's what he's going to think. He's going to think these people are prideful. They won't stop by the gas station and ask the attendant which way to go. And so they're wandering around in the desert. They can't figure out how to get where they're supposed to be. He says, have them camp in front of the Red Sea uh, with, with desert on the right and, let's see, desert on the left. And that'll be good. Because then they'll be sitting ducks. And God's getting excited and the Israelites are about to be terrified. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. They got to thinking about the economic situation in their country. We've got public works projects to do. What have we done? We just let our free labor go. This is a very understandable thing in the British Isles. The British Empire and Wilberforce was trying to get the slave trade in it. This was a common argument. The economy is going to collapse if we let go of this good thing we have called free labor. Southerners thought the same thing in the war of northern aggression. We've got a good deal going here. 
We get to depend on people we don't have to pay to do all our work for us. We can get rich that way. If you have little expenses, you can make lots of money and build lots of cool pyramids and such. So the, the Pharaoh and his officials, they say, we've lost our minds. We've got to go get them. What have we done? So he gets together his chariots, 600 of his chariots, toted by horses, and even more, we're told, his finest chariots. And he, with hard heart, decides to go after the Israelites. You can imagine, camping out one night, big fireball in the sky, you're feeling good. You're like, I don't know where we're headed, but we've just seen some mighty, amazing things. This is a nice vacation. We're by the sea. We got fire in the sky. Our God has been fighting for us. And then your little boy hits you in the leg as you're rousing from your sleep in the morning. and says, Mama, what are all them horses over there? What are those guys with all them spears doing? And you don't even bother to correct their grammar because you're freaked out. Suddenly, there is before you an army. And you know this army. You used to live with this army. You used to be in terror of this army. And now, they have you boxed in. You're a sitting duck. You don't know that God's playing chess with Pharaoh. You don't know that this is like a divine checkmate, as my friend Jonathan St. Clair said. You don't know that. You don't know it's only, he's only making it look like you're in danger. You are in danger. They were terrified and cried out. Moses, they get sarcastic, just like you and I get sometimes. They're scared. Scared. And when you're scared, you blame people. And so they say to Moses, what are you trying? Trying to create a great big cemetery out here? Were there not enough of them back there in Egypt? Have you just brought us out here in the desert to be killed? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. And there you have it. The kind of way that we live and the kind of way that they process it is that there are only two options a lot of times when you're in the midst of fear and you're dealing with God. It looks like my two options are slavery or death. And most of us do not think those are good. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, but let me ask you this one question. As you think about sitting there where the, Egyptian, the Israelites are, being pursued by the Egyptians, and it looks to you like God is nowhere. He's tricked you. I've got three questions today. The first one is this. Are you letting God's apparent absence in your life leads you to absent God from your thinking? Are you letting God's apparent absence from your life move you to absent God from your thinking? The Israelites are ready just like that to go back. Can we negotiate terms? It was so nice back then. They've, they've, all of a sudden, they've become, they've become psychopaths. They're misremembering what has happened. They've forgotten entirely what God has done. You know, they just saw these plagues that Hutch talked about last week. 
you know, like turning everything to blood, making it smell real bad, and people being annoyed to the point of murderous agitation with gnats and flies and plagues of cattle and livestock and suffocating darkness and the killing of the firstborn and all that kind of stuff. And even in the midst of it, they saw God's treating the Egyptians differently than He's treating us. They're in smothering darkness. We're having light parties. They saw all this. They experienced all this. They've just been led along by this divine GPS system. Fire has been in the sky all night. And they have forgotten in five minutes that God did something. He seems absent and therefore He becomes absent from their minds. All they see is what they fear. Does that sound familiar? All they see is what they fear. See, one of the things you learn from this story, and you really kind of see it over the, and over the place, and you look at Christian history and you realize this in people's lives, and some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time realize this as well, that very often it is the case, and it's certainly the case here, that God so arranges and orchestrates events that it becomes clear at the end of the day when the action happens that nobody is going to mistakenly take credit for it. They're going to give credit to Him. So that no one can boast. Our salvation is an affair, we're told, that results in this. No one can boast. If you're a dead man and you get resuscitated, you get breathed back into life, you cannot boast. If you get rescued suddenly when it looks like you're toast, no one can boast. You start to realize, I've got to trust this God. He's everything, but God orchestrates these things. So, in the worst moments, in the most God-absented-seeming moments, Maybe that God's up to the most. It's certainly the case here. And this becomes a paradigm for how we think about our lives sometimes. Psalm 77. You have somebody in a situation like this, Asaph, is talking about his own distress, where it looks like God's absent from his life. And he says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. My soul refused to be comforted. Have you ever had a child that was so injured, so scared, so upset that they were disconsolate? They were crying and screaming. And no matter how much you hugged, and no matter how much you kissed, and no matter how much you tried to make it better, they refused to be comforted. And Asaph saying, that's what my innards felt like. That's how decimated I am with this sense of God's absence. And I remembered you, O oh God, and I groaned and I mused and my spirit grew faint and you grew, you kept my eyes from closed. I couldn't sleep. This is clinical depression. He's deep in a funk. He can't sleep. He can't think right. All he feels is searing pain. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused my spirit. Inquired, and here's the only questions I could think to ask. Will the Lord reject forever? Will He never show His favor again? Has His promise failed for all time? Has He forgotten to be merciful? 
Has he in anger withheld his compassion? He's in a dark, lonely, decimated funk. And all he can do when it comes to thinking about God is cry out and have the echo come back into his ears. No one's helping. God's forgotten. He makes these promises, but he doesn't come through. That's what he's wondering. Now, I always remember this sermon, this this text, this Psalm 77, because I preached this once at a nursing home and seminary in Orlando. And you know what? When I preached this sermon for these people whose lives were not the way they wanted them to be, they were at the end of their lives. They could not do the things they once could do. Their lives as they knew it had altered drastically. And it occurred to me, this is the kind of psalm we need to hear because God seems so absent. When you look at what the psalmist does for himself, you know why I remember this sermon more than anything? Because at the end of it, a nice old woman, and she was old, and I don't know any other way to say it. She said to me, well, you're getting better. You're no Billy Graham, but you're getting better. But here's what I told them. And this is what I needed to know, and this is what I think you need to know. In the midst of that kind of dejection, in the midst of this idea that I have been abandoned and forgotten by God, he says, to this I will appeal. Then I thought. Then I thought. I'm not going to be the victim of myself. I'm not going to be the victim of sitting here and letting things happen to me as if I have no control over them. I am going to do battle with my own mind. The best thing I've got is my memory. You know, that's what's most terrifying if you lose your memory. It's terrifying. Does anybody here hope that one day their mind will go? No, it's horrible. If you've been close to somebody, that's happening. You're not a person anymore. You're not the person you were if you have no memory. If you can't piece together experiences, if you can't connect context around you, if you have no memories, you are not you. And so the Bible is always urging people, remember, remember, do not forget, call this to mind. And this is exactly what he does in the middle of his funk. This is exactly what the Israelites did not do in the middle of their funk. To this I will appeal the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways are holy. What God is so great as our God? You're the God who performs miracles. You display power with your mighty arm. You rescue people. And then he talks about the Red Sea parting. Waters got scared of you. They writhed and convulsed and they ran away at your wind. You led your people through the water. Though your footprints were not safe. You and I, just like the Israelites here, if you're going to live this life with God, very often a part of your experience is He's going to seem absent. The Israelites are being formed as a people. But do you know how long it seemed like God was kind of absent from the whole equation? Only 430 years. That's a slight bit longer than most of your vacation time at work or most of any suffering that you're going to endure, 430 years to the day that these immigrants came because of a famine 
down to Joseph to get some food in Egypt, and they multiplied 430 years to the day. That's when they were let out. So it's you know, maybe around year 429 that God apparently is starting to hear them in their misery and raises up Moses, you see. Well, God's had a plan, but absence is a part of it, says Eugene Peterson. I think it's very important to remember that. And when he feels absent, are you letting his absent absent him from your thinking? The Egyptians forgot about God, and so they did a foolish thing. They went after God's people. Uh-uh. They forgot what he had just done. God didn't seem apparent, so they forgot to think about him. The Israelites, God didn't seem apparent to them. They thought they were about to get crushed. God didn't seem apparent. The only person at that moment who was remembering anything is God who does not forget, who will not forget. Are you letting God's apparent absence lead you to absent God from your thinking? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answers the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you're never going to see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Now, if somebody tells you that, you think, oh, that's great advice. I'm looking down the barrel of a gun and you're telling me to chillax? Just be still? Just stand there and do nothing? Yeah. That's right. Just stand there and do nothing. That's what he says. You do nothing, God will do everything on this one. That's not always the way God works, but in this case, that's the direction that his representative gave. You stand here, and God will do everything. Just watch. You are going to have your mind blown, he says. Which leads me to the second question. Because this advice that they get, just stand here. God will fight for you. God will fight for you. You've got, you're standing here on your feet, you're being come at with chariots. The most massive military force of the day is coming down at you, and you're just going to stand here. Do I sit? Do I look at them? What am I supposed to do? He says, stand here, and God will fight for you. So here's their choice. We can, we can surrender and go back to Egypt, or we can stand here, and to their minds, it looks like they're going to die. So to stand there requires a great deal of risk on their part. And here's the question for you. Do you dare to be delivered in your life? Because that's the Israelites' question. Do we trust this God who has already delivered us? Will he deliver us again? In his way, according to his terms, will we submit to that? Or will we go back to our slavery? And that is really the question of the Christian life. That's the question for these Israelites. There is always this perennial question. Are you going to serve Pharaoh? Nobody is fully free. Are you going to serve Pharaoh? Are you going to serve Yahweh? Are you going to try to come up with your own means of escape and serve yourself? Are you going to trust God's means of escape and trust Him? That's the question. Do you dare to be delivered? Do you know how easy it is for us to prefer a kind of slavery? You understand probably when the Israelites say, We'd like to go back. We at least got to eat good there. They beat us up, sure. Life was hard, but we got to eat meat. 
Seriously? Meat? Meat pots? You, you want to go back? But you think about it sometimes. You know what people do? It's a well-documented thing. Now, hopefully it's not the case for anybody in here. A woman, for instance, whose husband's beating her up. So badly are we hardwired for relationship. People stay in a home where a dude's beating her up because that slavery, that known thing, feels better than the apparent death of leaving and having no relationship, not knowing where you're going to go, not knowing the unknown. It seems like a choice between slavery and death. That's the choice that the Israelites are seeing. A choice between slavery and death. I had a headline recently. A dude broke back into jail. Is that a crime? I don't know. It's a weird one. I got to eat there. I got a bed, toilet. I'd rather be back in jail than be out there. It seems like death. You know, this is the kind of thing that becomes a paradigm or a, a way of thinking about your whole experience because over and over and over again, you have options that either feel like slavery or death when you first look at them, especially if you're absenting God from your thinking. It becomes a way of thinking about sin. Think about this. Think about some, some minor sin that, you know, that God doesn't care about, like gossiping. I'm being facetious. You know God hates gossiping, right? He doesn't like it when he talk bad about people that he made because he likes them. So, have you ever had an experience where you know, you know, you know that what you're about to say, you should not say? But, what are you going to do? Because you have to say it. Because it's there. And even though there's a megaphone in your ear going, do not say this thing you are about to say, inside you, you're going, yes, but if I don't say it, I'm going to die. I have to say it. Now, this all happens really fast in your head. And so you've got this temptation. Right? And you're enslaved to it. You can't not do it. And you think the only way to make the temptation go away is to give in to the slavery. Because the other way feels like death. Now, not literally. You don't think you're actually going to die if you don't say it. But it's like a scratch that you think I, the only way for the scratch to go away is for me to itch it. And see, that's the devil's best trick for any kind of sin in your life. You get tempted, and you think the only way to make the temptation go away is to submit to the slavery. Because if I, do the, if I don't do the thing, it's going to feel like death. If I submit to God's will and not my own, that's going to feel like death. And you know what Jesus says? Correct. Correct. But guess what? He raises the dead. Guess what? Jesus' promise is when you give up your life, when you give up your own will and you submit to His will about your speech, about the use of your body, about what you take into yourself, about what you do at your work, how you do your relationships, how you do your money. When you neglect your will and you submit to His, it feels like a kind of death. But He says that's the way you find life. You're not tyrannized by your own self. You become benevolently ruled by the God who has summoned you out. That's what He wants the Israelites to do. He wants them to trust. And that's why some of you, some of you don't dare to be delivered from the things you won't be delivered from. You're scared. 
Some of you have forgiveness that you need to offer to somebody. And it feels like if I, you're enslaved by your hatred of this person, you think about them all the time. They're not thinking about you, just the newsflash. Most of the people you hate the most and have the most resentment for and you hope that somebody will hit them in the head with a two-by-four, most of those people are not thinking about you. That's why you're not reconciled. Because they are thinking about you. But you know what? They are binding you. They're, they're, they got their talons in you. You're enslaved to your resentments. And you think, slavery or death if I just let them off the hook? Death. Jesus says, let them off the hook. Death. It is death. You'll feel a small death, and then you'll come alive. The Christian way is you die, and then you live. Death gives way to life. There's no other choice. You either pick your own way, or you pick God's way. And that's why some of the times when we look at the Bible, you say, why would Jesus tell a dude who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he comes up to him, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't Jesus the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Why would he ask somebody who's been sick and paralyzed for 38 years and invalid, what do you want me to do for you? Because he wants to make sure that he dares to be healed. Because you know what? There's a certain kind of safety in being a slave. If you're a victim, if you're a sick person, some of you are, you've been entrusted with things that are horrible. If that's the only way you think of yourself, there's some, there's some fear. What happens if I'm not sick anymore? Will someone expect something of me? Will I have to change the narrative of how I think about myself? If I change, what happens then? It's terrifying. Sometimes we'd rather not. Augustine said, oh Lord, please give me chastity. But can you wait till tomorrow? But not yet. See, sometimes we pray to God, will you change me? Will you set me free? Will you deliver me? And then behind our back, we've got our fingers crossed. We say one thing with our mouth, our hearts have other plans because we don't want to die. We don't want to surrender our will. But Moses says, if you'll stand still, Israelites, if you'll give up your own fear here, you're going to see God do something. Anytime you walk through, Joe Emerson says this, I repeat it all the time, it's really good. Anytime you walk through the door, marked fear, you meet Jesus on the other side. And that's what he's saying. If you'll stand here and stand in the face of your fears and not give in to them, not go back to slavery because you're afraid. You know what you'll do? You'll meet Jesus on the other side. You'll meet the God who fights for you and rescues you. Do you dare to be delivered? And lastly this, are you distracted though from your deliverance? Listen to this. Moses says, that he's apparently crying out to the Lord. The Lord says, quit crying out to me. Here's what you do. Take your staff, that magic staff that I've told you about, the one that could change the Nile into blood and turns into a snake and all that cool stuff that you saw in the Pixar movie. Now, Here's what I want you to do. Go to the Red Sea. Hold up your arm. Do the staff out. The waters are going to divide. The waters are going to divide. And I'm going to harden the Egyptian's heart. And once again, he says, see, I'm creating drama so that I can rescue you and get glory for myself. And so what happens is, God puts His darkness on the Egyptians once more. He puts His light on, over his people, so during the night nothing can happen. And then Moses does his thing, and then the east wind starts coming, and the waters start piling up. Now, lumber can pile up, but waters aren't supposed to pile up. This freaked them out just like it would you. 
And as they were being attacked, as this was happening, the Israelites walked through this aquarium with no glass. They walked through. They walked through. And God delivers them. And then the Egyptians try the same. God says to Moses, do your abracadabra thing. And all of a sudden the waters come up and they're all drowned. They're drowned. And at the end of it, we're told this. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in His servant Moses. Here's a question I ask for you today. My last question. Are you distracted from your deliverance? You know, Moses tells these people to stand still and watch. And it occurs to me that one of the things that the Bible always urges us against is that we're going to get tricked. That our hearts are going to turn away from the living God. Instead of bounding and abounding in trust for Him and wanting His ways and walking in them, we're invariably going to turn away. We're going to get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so it's worth asking in an age like ours where here's the, the particular temptation. It's, it doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't seem that hard or wrong. It's, maybe you're just distracted from God's deliverance. I had introduced to me a TED talk recently. Now this professor at MIT who's written a book called Alone Together. She's talking about the way that technology interacts with our lives and how it forms us and shapes us. And she says one of the delusional fantasies that technology provides for us, and when she says technology, I think you understand what I mean. She's not talking about hammers and nails, which those are a form of technology. She's talking about Facebook and blogs and Pinterest and Twitter and texting and things you do in a, with a handheld device. And she says what these things provide for us is a delusional fantasy that, one, we can be wherever we want to be rather than where we are. Now, she's just speaking descriptively about some people that aren't sitting in here. But you can be wherever you want to be, just not where you are. Okay? The other thing she says is that these we get this delusional fantasy from technology that means we will always be heard. We want to be listened to. It's terrifying because you, you know you talk to people now, people don't listen to you. They're texting. People are developing a skill of keeping eye contact while they text. So you can at least fake listen. We want to be listened to, so it feels good to put something out there, to put something on Facebook, to, to show what cool clothes you like on Pinterest and what healthy food, how snazzy it all is. And maybe if someone's following you, you're being listened to, and it's a great delusional comfort you're being listened to. And then the third thing is this. It promises you never have to be alone. That our technological connections promise us we never have to be alone. And see, I'm worried for myself and us that what we're doing is that we're not actively turning away from God. We've just ordered our lives in such a way and we've drunk this Kool-Aid in such a way that we're just not giving God any mind. We just don't ever think about it. And we've gotten so addicted to these things 
that feel like it, it has to be our life. And you say, well, I'm not addicted to this. I could, okay, if you're not addicted, here, let me give you an assignment this afternoon. Will you go today or tomorrow and then sometime in the next three days, go off for one hour, one hour, go off for one hour to some place where you can sit there. Okay, and do what? Nothing. Where you can just sit there without your phone, without a book, without a pen, without anything, just yourself and just sit there. And let me tell you what's going to happen. In three minutes, you are going to call 911. But you won't have your phone. But you'll think you're going crazy. Because you know why? It is insufferable for most of us to be by ourselves. Some of you hate loneliness more than anything. You're terrified by loneliness. You think you're a cosmic orphan on this earth. And so you're using everybody else to get you something. But see, God is in the business of transforming slaves into children. People who thought they were dirt into people who are images of God. And he tells them to stand still and watch and never forget this thing where he delivered them, where he parted the seas for him, where he works for them. And so one of the things that you and I have got to do is you've got to disconnect some to give attention, to remember to meditate, to consider, to bring to mind. God works for those who wait for Him. God acts. God has not left. God has plans. He's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Even when it seems like He's not, you'll never, ever think of these things if you're constantly the kind of person as soon as you wake up, you text, before you even go to the bathroom, you check your text messages or your email. The last thing you do before bed is you check your email. You've got to disconnect some. You're too, we're too distracted to notice God's action and it's the best kind of ploy of Satan. The Israelites at least knew that the Egyptians were bearing down on them. Satan, you know, does his best work not by putting things into your head, by keeping them out. He tricks you. He doesn't say, hey, you, mom, when you wake up in the morning, hey, you, college student, when you wake up in the morning, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to make it so that you don't think about God one second. Or think about the condition of your soul, or the fact that you're going to die, or why you're on the earth. I'm going to make it so that all you think about is how cool your clothes are, while your soul rots and festers because you're not giving it any attention. I'm going to make you so concerned that your house looks awesome so that it could be in a magazine, and your heart mildewed with inattention to God, with distrust and disease. Satan doesn't do that, you see. He doesn't say, you know what I'm going to do when someone wrongs you today? I'm going to have it so that you sit there and you think about how, how horrible you have it. How mean everybody is to you. And I'm going to, I'm going to lead you into self-pity because then you won't think about God and you won't think about any resources you have. You're just going to think about how hard everything is for you and how unfair it is. And then I'm going to help you hate this person. And I'm going to help you plot your revenge. But I'm going to teach you to be kind and smiley to him to the face. He doesn't say that. He tricks you. He never lets you suspect any of that stuff. 
He just keeps you busy. Keeps you moving. Keeps you texting. Keeps you posting. Ah, if you want deliverance, if you want to live, you got to pay attention to this God who is asserting to the Egyptians and to the Israelites and to people on the back of Lookout Mountain in 2013. You must deal with me. And it's a good thing to do that. Because I fight for my people. And I rescue my people. Technology is not going to do that for you. Nothing's going to do that for you. I'm going to do that for you. Don't let God's apparent absence, absent God from your thinking, dare to be delivered. Risk death so that you might find life and don't let yourself be so distracted that you don't sometimes exult in deliverance. Because you know, after the Israelites stood still and they considered what God did, they had a new national anthem. They rejoiced. They sang. The Lord is a warrior. He hurled the horse and rider into the sea. The Lord delivers His people. They had a new identity, they were no longer slaves. They were God's people. You are God's people. Trust Him. Make room for Him. Risk for Him. Don't forget Him.